0: Hi, welcome to another one of the Branch Online Sermons. I'm not sure about you, but I think one of the most terrifying forces of nature that there is is the sea. The sea can be wonderfully calm, it can be like a mill pond, but on the other hand, the sea can be wild and terrifying. And the thought of being stuck off the coast uh, in a small boat, being tossed around by the sea, I think is terrifying. There's the fear that you might be driven further out into sea. Uh, There's the fear that you might be driven into the land uh, and swept up onto the rocks. Well, that image of danger and of drifting uh, is one that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapters one and two of his letter to describe a danger that there is for Christians. The danger is that we'll drift away from the gospel and drift into danger. But how do we make sure that that doesn't happen? How do we make sure that doesn't happen to us? Well, like in a boat, the best solution to drifting is uh, an anchor. And that's true as much of the Christian life as it is in boating. And in this section of Hebrews that we're looking at today, we're introduced to God's anchor which is God's word and promise about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The passage that we're looking at today is Hebrews chapter 6 from verse 13 to chapter 7, verse 28. And if you haven't read that yet, then I would encourage you to stop the video and to read that now. In the sermon last week, we looked at the beginning of chapter 6, and we saw there that the writer warns people about... Uh, the possibility that they might trample on Jesus and subject him to sub- public disgrace by claiming to know Jesus, claiming to follow him, but, but really hanging on to sin, not turning away from sin and entrusting themselves to Jesus. But amid those warnings of danger, the writer wants to encourage us to find a solid place to anchor ourselves. And he does that by suddenly jumping back into the Old Testament to the book of Genesis, to talk about Abraham. In verse 13, the Holy Spirit says to us there, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Those Verses are looking back to some of the very earliest parts of the Bible to Genesis chapter 15, 17, and 22. Uh, in those chapters, God appears to Abraham and promises Abraham that he will bless him. Now, the trouble for poor old Abraham was that he had to wait a very long time before he saw God's promises fulfilled. In fact, Arguably, Abraham didn't even experience those promises fulfilled in his life on earth. Uh, those promises weren't fulfilled until about 400 years later, uh, at, the, at the time of the Exodus. So, given that had Abraham had to wait so long without seeing much in the way of the fruit of what God had promised, how could Abraham trust God? Well, the writer says in verse 18, Abraham could trust God because of two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. First, Abraham could trust God because God's word and God's purpose are rock solid. That's what the writer describes in verse 17 as God's unchanging nature of his purpose. When God says that he's going to do something, he does it. When you and I say that we're going to do something, we might not do it. We might not do it because we don't follow through to what we've committed, or we might not do it because we can't do it. We might say to someone, I'll always be there for you, but the time might come when they actually really need us and we're not there. Maybe we're not there because something else has become more important to us and we put that above helping out our friend. Maybe we're not there because we're tired and we just want to have a rest or maybe we're not there because we can't be bothered. But even if we're completely committed to that cause of being there, sometimes we're powerless to uphold our commitment. We might promise I'll always be there for you, but we might be dead tomorrow. We we might be in a coma. We, we might be stuck in a traffic jam. But that never happens to God. God never says, I'll do it, and doesn't follow through, either because he changes, changes his mind or because he's unable to follow through. That never happens to God. God says, I'll do it, and he does it, because he's absolutely committed to doing what he's promised. It's in his nature to do that. It's very... it's absolutely a part of who he is, but also God is powerful enough to follow through on his commitment. Nothing can stop him. So the writer of Hebrews says we can trust God because his word is rock solid, but we often find it hard even still to trust God. And because of that, in his kindness, God has added another ground for our Uh, confidence. God has sworn an oath to keep his word. The writer says in verse 16 that we do that kind of thing all the time. We sign contracts with employers or with banks to put our word beyond doubt. In the language of the Bible, those oaths are called covenants. A covenant is an oath-bound relationship. And God in his mercy has made a covenant with us, not because god needs to make covenants but in order god has done it in order to bolster our confidence to help us to be more confident in his trustworthiness in other words god's covenants are because of our weakness to trust him not because of his weakness and that covenant that oath the writer says is an anchor for the soul firm and secure it's an anchor that reaches into heaven into the very presence of God. So perhaps you're worried that God won't save you. Maybe you're worried that your sins are too black, too evil. Maybe you're worried that you've known the truth and you've deliberately chosen to turn away from that and now you want to come back and you're worried that God won't forgive you. You're worried that there might not be a way back. Maybe you fear those things for yourself, maybe you fear those uh, that's what your friend fears. Uh, maybe that's what your son or your your daughter fears. But God says that he gave Jesus so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God says Whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promises of the gospel of salvation through Jesus are an anchor for the soul for whoever would receive them. If you receive those promises, if you trust them, if you confess them, you will be saved. God says that his word about Jesus is like an anchor that reaches through the curtain into the very presence of God. It is stuck fast in the presence of God and if you have got that anchor tied around your waist, then nothing can drag your way from God. So the Holy Spirit reassures us here in this chapter of Hebrews that God's words about Jesus are an anchor that reach into the very presence of God. But we don't simply have this promise from God, these words from God and no evidence of God having done anything about it. We also, now have Jesus who has gone through that curtain into the presence of God on our behalf and stands there before God representing us. Beginning at verse 19, the writer says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters into the sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf, has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So along with God's word and God's oath, we also have Jesus who represents us before the Father. What follows then in chapter 7 verses 1 to 10 is a justification of that idea. Before we look at the argument that the writer is making, though, it helps to know what the question is he is seeking to answer. The question that he's seeking to answer is, how can Jesus be a priest if Jesus is not from the tribe of Aaron? Look at verse 13 of chapter 7. It says, He of whom these things are said, that is Jesus, belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah... And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, but people from that tribe couldn't serve as priests in the Old Testament. They had to be from the tribe of Aaron, or from the tribe of Levi and descendants of Aaron. So how can Jesus be a priest then? Now that might not be a burning question in your mind. I suspect it's very unlikely that you're kept awake at night wondering why Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi and why he's not a descendant of Aaron. But the the credibility of who Jesus is hangs on the answer to that question. At the heart of the Bible's claim about Jesus is the idea that Jesus didn't just turn up on the scene and then uh, reinvent everything from scratch. Rather, Jesus came in fulfilment of the long heritage of the promises that God had made throughout the Old Testament. If we can't explain how Jesus can be a high priest and not from the tribe of Aaron, then the entire legitimacy of who Jesus claimed to be is called into question. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to answer that question and to give us confidence that Jesus is who he uh, said he is. And the writer does that by turning again to the Old Testament, again to the book of Genesis, this time to discuss a rather enigmatic and strange character by the name of Melchizedek. If you've got a Bible, it'd be helpful for you to turn to Genesis chapter 14. Now in Genesis chapter 14, we find the story of Abraham who sets out to rescue his nephew Lot. Lot has been taken captive by a number of kings who live in the area where Abraham and Lot were. And Abraham gathers a bit of an army to go and rescue his nephew Lot. And he uh, succeeds in that and he, he rescues his nephew. And then uh, in, we read in verse 17 of chapter 14, after Abraham returned from defeating Kedileomer, And the kings allied with him. The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God, Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God, Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. It's a strange episode, and it's all we're ever told about Melchizedek in in Genesis and in a historical sense. But from the writer of Hebrews' perspective, there are a number of important things that this episode teaches us. First, this guy Melchizedek was a priest of God. We don't know much else about him, uh, but we do know that Melchizedek was a priest of God. So we know that a long time before Aaron, a long time before the priesthood of Aaron was set up in the days of Moses after the Exodus, we do know that there was another kind of priest not descended from Aaron. That means that it's at least possible for there to be a kind of an, another kind of priest who isn't descended from Aaron. Second, this guy Melchizedek, Was also a king. In the later history of Israel, the priesthood and the kingship were always separated. You had the king and you had the priest. But here in Genesis, in the person of Melchizedek, they occur together. Melchizedek is a king and a priest. Third, this Melchizedek is more important than Abraham. We know that because Abraham uh, pays Melchizedek this tribute. Abraham was the one to whom God had made promises, but Melchizedek, it turns out, is more important than Abraham. Fourth, and maybe the most strangely, Melchizedek, from a literary point of view, has no beginning of days or end of life, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. That doesn't mean that Melchizedek was never actually born and never actually died, but usually in the Bible, and particularly in Genesis, you get more details about a person. You get their genealogy. You get their backstory. You find out what happened uh, after the events in the, in the, in the story and the, what happened before. But you, you don't get that with Melchizedek. Melchizedek just appears out of nowhere and then disappears. And in that sense, it's a bit like he has, in a literary sense, no beginning of life or end of life. He's just there. The writer is not saying that Melchizedek was Jesus before he came to earth uh, and took on humanity, born as a, as a baby uh, in Bethlehem. Rather, it's just that Melchizedek became a sort of symbol of the possibilities, the possibilities of a priest not from the tribe of Aaron, the possibilities of a priest who was a king, uh, who was greater than Abraham uh, and a priest who had always been and who always would be. So at the very beginning of the Bible we have this glimpse of this priest king and it's not until 400 years later after Melchizedek uh, that the priests descended from Aaron were set up to serve in the temple after the Exodus when God brought the people out through Moses. But sometime after that, not so long after the, the priests of Aaron had been set up, uh, not too long after that, at the beginning of the book of Samuel, there is a crisis in the priesthood. Uh, turn, if you, if you can, to 1 Samuel chapter 2. So what's happening at in 1 Samuel chapter 2 is that there is a high priest, Eli, and his two sons are, are truly wicked men. They're utterly godless and they steal from the things that are intended for God. And so God comes to Eli and he says in verse 28, I chose your ancestor, that is Aaron, I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest. Then in verse 30, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honour me, I will honour, but those who despise me, I will despise. The day will come when God will cut off the descendants of Aaron from being priests, and instead, he promises in verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and mind, I will firmly establish his house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Now, it's quite likely that that last line should say, uh, I will firmly establish his house and my anointed one will minister before me always. That is, God is not promising, again, two people, a priest and An anointed, a priest who will minister before his anointed or his Messiah. God is promising one person, his anointed, who will minister before him, before God. Aaron had been appointed to minister before God. And now God is foreshadowing that this new priest, this new anointed, will be appointed to minister before God too. And what's interesting about the books of Samuel is that they begin with this fall of the priesthood... But the rest of the books of Samuel follow up with the rise of the house of David, with the rise of the kingship. God anoints David to be king and promises that God will raise up for David a house, that is a family. In other words, the books of Samuel show that the promise of this new priest to replace the priest from the tribe of of Levi and from Aaron, uh, that this new priest, this new family comes From the family of David, not from the family of Aaron. And yet, even in the days of David, the priesthood and the kingship are still not brought together. They're still separate. But then one day, David writes a psalm. No doubt he was reflecting on the scriptures, on Genesis 14, and God's words to Samuel, and God's promises to himself. And David writes Psalm 110. Turn with me to uh, that psalm, to Psalm 110. It's a psalm that the writer of Hebrews quotes in the passage that we're looking at. David writes in Psalm 110: The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David is thinking of one of his descendants who will sit on the throne. And yet this descendant of David is somehow his lord, David's own lord. That is, David's descendant is greater than David himself. Normally it's the other way around. The ancestor is greater than the the descendant. But David says, no, another descendant is coming who will be greater than David. And David also says that like Melchizedek, this king descended from David will be both priest and king. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Not only will this king be a priest, he'll be a priest forever. And the writer of Hebrews says all those promises have now come to fruition in Jesus. Jesus is the priest who doesn't minister in a little building or a little tent in the Middle East. Jesus is the priest who represents us before God in the heavenly places. He's a priest who can do that because he's like us, but he's also blameless and holy. Jesus is the descendant of David, a king who, like Melchizedek, is also a priest. Jesus is the one who finally brings those roles of king and priest together. Jesus is the one who is Abraham's descendant, but also greater than Abraham because he's God most high, come into our world as a human being. Jesus is the one who is without beginning of days or end of life because he's eternal God. He was there at the beginning of the world and he'll be there forever. Jesus is the one who is therefore a priest forever. So although you may not lie awake at night wondering why Jesus isn't from the tribe of Levi and a descendant of Aaron, it's so important to understand how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus and how Jesus fulfills it because it gives us confidence that Jesus is who he said he is. So the writer of Hebrews uh, here, the Holy Spirit through the writer of Hebrews, reassures us that God's words about Jesus are an anchor that reach into the presence of God. He reassures us through the scriptures that Jesus is the one who has gone through the curtain before us and who has entered on our behalf. Finally, the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Hebrews, shows us why we needed a better priest than Aaron and why Jesus is that priest Verse 11 here is key. It says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? The question is this, why another priest? What was wrong with the priesthood of Aaron and his descendants? And the answer that the writer of Hebrews gives is that that priesthood could not bring perfect perfection. Look at verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. People kept bringing sacrifices. They kept washing themselves to make themselves ritually pure. But they were the same sinful people who kept rejecting God, kept destroying his world, kept hurting the people whom God had made. Not only that, the priests were flawed. Verse 23 tells us that they kept dying. So even if you had a semi-decent priest, he wouldn't last forever. And not only that... The priests themselves had to offer sacrifices because they too were sinful, just like the people that they were representing. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus isn't like that. Jesus has a permanent priesthood. And unlike the priests before, unlike those sinful priests, verse 26, Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the highest heavens. Then verse 28 says, For the law appoints as high, high priests men in all their weakness, in all their sin, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Here is one of the really big ideas in the book of Hebrews. The Old Testament priests weren't perfect. We aren't perfect, but Jesus is perfect, and he can make others perfect too. In the first half of the book of Hebrews, again and again, we're told that Jesus was made perfect. In chapter 2, verse 10, we're told Jesus was made perfect through suffering. In chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, we're told that Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. We saw Uh, In 7.28, just a moment ago, that Jesus is the Son who has been made perfect forever. But then in the middle of Hebrews, we're told that the law made nothing perfect. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 19. But then in chapter 9, verse 9, it says, the law could not perfect the conscience of the worshipper. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says that because the law was only a shadow of the things to come, it could never... By its sacrifices, make perfect those who draw near to worship. In the first half of Hebrews, Jesus is perfect. In the middle, the law can't make anything perfect. But then in the last chapters of Hebrews, God's people are the ones who are made perfect through Jesus. So in chapter 10, verse 14, it says that by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Or in chapter 11, verse 39 to 40, it says the Old Testament believers never received what was promised, so that only they together with us would be made perfect. And finally, in chapter 12, verse 22 and 23, it says that those who trust Jesus are among the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In other words, there's this progression, what the law couldn't do in making people perfect, Jesus has done first in himself, and then shared it with those who trust in him. Jesus was made perfect, but not in the sense that he was sinful and had to become perfect. Rather, he was perfect in his divinity, and then in taking on humanity, he had to perfect humanity in his own person. He perfected humanity by taking on human flesh and then living his entire life in complete obedience to the Father, dying in our place and then rising to eternal life. And what Jesus has perfected in himself, he now shares with those who trust in him. Through trust in Jesus, God declares us to be perfect. And through the Spirit uniting us with Jesus, God is making us more and more perfect every day. And that work of perfecting us will be completed when Jesus returns again to gather his people and to judge the living and the dead. Now you might look at your life and despair. You might look at the sin that still lives in your heart and you might be tempted to give up hope and think, what's, what's the point? You might be tempted even as you sit there to give up on the gospel because of the, the you feel the hopelessness of your situation. But don't. Jesus has made a way for us into the presence of God. Jesus has perfected our broken and distorted humanity in himself. He's crucified our sin as our representative. He's risen to new life. He's made his way into his Father's presence again. And he's made that way not just for himself, but for all those who trust in him, for all those who take hold of him. No sin in our lives is insurmountable. No waywardness is beyond the power of God in Jesus. No hopelessness or sense of hopelessness is real. Because Jesus has come down to us and made his way back to the Father. And in doing that, he's become the anchor that reaches through the curtain into the very presence of God, not just the word of God that God never breaks, not just the oath of God to make us more sure. The great anchor of our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's Jesus who has done what we could never do, who has taken on our humanity, who has perfected and who now stands before his Father and who shares all that with whoever entrusts themselves to him. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word of promise about him, your oath of promise that uh, through him you will save a people for yourself. Uh, and Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that that is an anchor for our soul uh, that reaches into your presence. Lord, you know that so often we're people who find it hard to trust. We find it hard to trust others. But Lord, we even find it hard to trust you, to believe your word uh, and to live on the basis of trusting your word. Lord, please forgive us for that. And please, by your spirit, reassure us through these words of the truth of what you have promised in Jesus and what you have achieved in Jesus. Thank you that your word of promise that is an anchor for our souls is a word which has been fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. Thank you that Jesus has come down to us. He's taken on our humanity. He's crucified it. He's crucified our sins. He's put our sin to death and he's been raised to new life. So that whoever trusts in him can share in that life, can share in his status of being perfect, holy and blameless in your sight. But Lord, also who can share in being changed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that as we take hold of the Lord Jesus, as we fix our gaze on him, that we will be transformed day by day by the power of your spirit into his image to be like him uh, and to be holy and blameless. Lord, we, we ask that none of us would doubt, that none of us would despair, that none of us, Lord, would give up hope in the gospel, that none of us would turn away from such great and precious promises, but, Lord, that we would keep holding on to the anchor that is the Lord Jesus Christ through faith in him, for we ask it in his name's sake. Amen.